This is Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. January is always a quiet month in the arts, at least for the going out kind of arts, more of a stay at home with a book or binge watch a TV series kind of month. But this quiet arts month does give me a chance to look back over the previous year of speaking at the art shows and revisit some of my favorite chats. So this week we are going to hop back in time to August, September and October and my chats with three singer-songwriters. If you heard these chats the first time around, then I hope you enjoy revisiting them. And if you missed them, well, then I hope they bring some arts light to this dark January evening. There are so many incredible musicians, artists and writers out there. And sometimes I feel a sense of panic that I cannot possibly know about all of them. Who am I missing that I absolutely should know? And that is how I felt this week when I realized I could have spent my life missing the music and voice of Chris Matthews and how thankful I was to Columbia's Compass Music Center, where Chris will be teaching a masterclass on social justice songwriting and performing a concert on Saturday, September the 10th. Earlier this year, Chris won the 2021 Song of the Year from the International Folk Music Awards for her song, Changemakers, taken from her album of the same name. A hope-fueled, love-filled, social justice rallying cry set of songs that talk about immigration, black lives, racial injustice, gun safety, the opioid crisis, as well as the importance of meeting people where they are and causing good trouble. The album is, she says, an all-aboard call for the hope train. In 2017, Chris not only won the grand prize at the new Song, Music and Performance competition at the Lincoln Centre, winning out over 5,000 other entrants, also released an album about love and life titled The Imagineers and an EP of social justice songs called Battle Hymn for an Army of Lovers. She has been hailed as the next Woody Guthrie compared to Tracy Chapman and Ruthie Foster, but really, she is simply and powerfully Chris Matthews, a songwriter whose music ranges across American folk, blues, bluegrass and country soul, a preacher's daughter from Richlands, North Carolina, who is a proud butch-identified lesbian, a really good cook, became a proficient gardener during lockdown, has a penchant for the real housewives of Atlanta, dislikes set lists, is a left-handed guitarist, finds wisdom in the words of her grandmother's favourite president, FDR, and in the words of Dr King, is an astounding drum major for justice. Chris, what an honour and delight to have you on the show. What an absolute honour to be here. My goodness, what a wonderful introduction. Thank you for that. (laughs) Well, as I outed you on having a thing about the real housewives of Atlanta, (laughs) I will return the confession by admitting that my trashy TV guilty pleasure is The Bachelor. And I really think there should be an LGBTQ version, though I worry that in fact, it will mostly point out that cisgender people are far worse behaved, more prone to histrionics, weeping and saying, that's amazing. (laughs) Uh, But would you tune in? (laughs) I would definitely watch that. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. 
<laughs> so you will be here in Colombia on the 10th of September teaching a social justice songwriting workshop. And I am curious what some of the tips are that you give to young people starting on this journey, as it seems like the most important ones can't be taught. And it's about how to have an open heart and a passion for being that drum major for justice. What are the tips you give out? Absolutely. It's so interesting. Kids, we find ourselves kind of almost trying to shelter young people from some of these really important conversations as if they aren't constantly thinking about these same things every single day. You know, mm -hmm. they're they're only just young. They still live on this planet. They're still concerned with how things go on this planet because the world that we create for them is the world that they're going to inherit. So they very much have skin in the game. And so for them, the idea of being able to kind of teach them how to say what it is they already want to say in a way that gets to the crux of, of what it is they are trying to convey to folks. It's a thing that's difficult no matter what age you are is trying to distill down the tweet size version of the truth it is that you really want to share with somebody else. And so it's kind of about that. It's about teaching folks how to get to the, the heart of what it is they're trying to say, and also to do what tends to be so very effective with social justice music, which is not burying the heart of it, because people's ears just tend to work better when they can kind of find the empathy and compassion in an issue. Those are the things that always reach people when, when it's always anger when it's always rage. And, and I am by no means discrediting those two very, very useful emotions and very, very pertinent emotions, especially in the current times. But if the objective is as a songwriter to have people actually listen to what it is you want to say, sometimes the best way to do that is to make sure their ears actually stay on through the entire song. And I find more often than not uh, with the difficult things I sing about, the best way to achieve that is meeting folks with compassion and empathy in and kind of inviting them to come into a particular story through that lens. Right. There's such a feeling of nihilism, I think, in the next generation and, you know, in, in all of us of just where is the future? What are we doing? How can we change anything? So yeah. that must be hard sometimes for young people to, in social justice writing, to feel hope. Yeah. Do people always have hope? Do you always find that in them? It's interesting. I really do. I I joke sometimes. It's not a it's not a Chris Matthews show if somebody's not crying. <laughs> um, a lady told me when I was at a festival in Canada that I should start making sure I have uh, packets of Kleenex at my merch <laughs> table for for folks to buy on the way in. But the reason is, it's because they they do find themselves, I think, somewhat surprised by how hopeful they remember to be, um, because it is, there is so much happening. It feels so overwhelming. I think a lot of folks just kind of want to bury their heads in the sand and, you know, move on because it just feels like everything is so hopeless. But signing on to that is kind of giving the other side more fuel because as I always tell folks when I'm when I'm teaching and when I'm singing, you know, the important thing is the hope. That is the point of it, because when people continue to hope for better, they continue to fight for better. And so when it comes to music, if you are able to kind of have a hard conversation, shed light on a, on a difficult truth or sometimes an uncomfortable truth, but do so with the ultimate goal being to remind people of how important it is to maintain hope that we can fix this thing, hope that we can do better um, and should be doing better. At the end of the day, you may inspire somebody to, to do something that actually might change and make some good in this world in a way that it may not have had you not said what you did say. So, right. yeah. 
You picked up clarinet in sixth grade and you had dreams of being a high school band director and went off to <laughs> Appalachian State to study music education. But how did that end up in this amazing career? And when did songwriting become part of your journey? <laughs> Such an interesting tale. So <laughs> as I was pursuing my, my, my career as a future high school band director at App. Um, my roommate at the time was also in the school of music and was a percussionist and was part of this band. And so this one particular night, she was like, we have this gig and our keyboard player can't make it. Do you think you could fill in for the gig? And of course, you know, growing up in, in the AME church, being a preacher's kid, my chops on the keys weren't, weren't bad. They weren't, they weren't too shabby at all. So I was like, yeah, I think I can get you through the gig. And uh, she said, and you also have to sing a song, which of course I did not anticipate having to do. <laughs> and I was like, what song is it? And it was Tell Me Something Good by Shaka Khan and Rufus. And so I was like, well, all right, I think I can sing that song. Yeah, it'll be fine. And we had the absolute best time. It was a night I still remember to this day. It was the one and only show we ever played together as a band in that configuration. And it literally changed my life. That It was one of those moments where truly that particular night changed my life. I had the best time and it was such a cool feeling. I came home and wrote my first song um, on keys. I wasn't even playing guitar at that time. And so the song that I ended up writing, my very first song that I ever wrote, I entered into the Campus Talent Show and ended up winning first place with it, which was 500 bucks, which is like, <laughs> man, the currency translator on that is like $2 million for college kids. It's like, holy smokes, this is amazing. And so that was it. It was just like, man, maybe I'm not bad at this. And so I just kept writing more and more songs and ultimately did find my way to guitar, which is another fun story. Folks are always like, why do you play the guitar upside down and backwards? That's a whole nother segue of a story. But Oh, because you're uh, left-handed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, so that that's kind of how it all started. I just kept writing and kept getting better and better and then had, had more important things I felt like to say and ultimately learned how to say those things. Well, it's a long way, though, from being a good songwriter to actually having a career. I mean, <laughs> you can give up the day job. This is what you yeah. do for a living. I mean, how yes. how did that all happen? So that was interesting. That that did take some time. Um, as you can imagine, the illustrious life of a folk singer is one that is usually uh, <laughs> it goes hand in hand with poverty by and large. But uh, as I was beginning to to be a more serious uh, musician, to you know, start to have albums that were created and available for people to get and actually having performances and a schedule and things like that. My now ex-wife, but my wife at the time, um, I was very fortunate. She was very supportive of various aspects of my career. And so because she had what I like to jokingly kind of call a good government job, <laughs> it did make it easy for me to pursue just being an artist to kind of say, okay, look, can you hold us down for like six months and let me just give this a really good shot and see if there's anything to it? And she agreed and did. And, and so things kind of really did take off from there. I was able to enter new song and become part of various communities like uh, the Folk Alliance International Community and the Northeast Regional Folk Alliance Community and things like that and just get my name out there um, and get in front of more and more folks. So... I was able to kind of really buckle down and, and focus uh, my energy and attention on, on being an artist. And it has paid off. I, I got a booking agent shortly thereafter, uh, after winning New Song and got a manager uh, this past month. And uh, things have been going very well. Fantastic. One of the things you want to inspire people to do is to have 
the difficult conversations. And I wonder, of the difficult conversations that you have turned into songs, which was the most profound for you? Mm. Wow, what a great question. It's probably a, a toss-up. The The song that kind of, I call it the sleeper track on Changemakers, is called This Kind of War. And that song, for me, that was a really important story to tell because I know how many of my friends and neighbors are struggling with the opioid crisis, but it's a thing that has not knocked on my family's door. Uh, We're very fortunate in that way. And so to try to tackle an issue like that, that is so deeply personal to so many people in a way that did not feel exploitative, in a way that really called people in to be mindful of of the struggles that a lot of their neighbors are shouldering and shed light on something that is truly affecting so many people and doing so quietly because there's so much shame and stigma around it. I think that song is pretty profound for me because of that. Well, I'd love to share one of your tracks. So maybe that's the one we should listen Listen to This Kind of War. Yeah. Okay, here it is. This Kind of War by Chris Matthews. He's got a hole in his heart where his daughter used to be. And another one, yeah, another one for the neighbor down the street. It's a war zone from the pulpit to the bleachers, students and teachers drowning. His sweet little mining town is crumbling down around him. He was a simple kind of man, never thought this would be his life. They say misery loves company, but then the heartbreak claimed his wife. And this is one fight. songs are they melody led or lyric led it's so fascinating i really cannot say 100 percent of the time it's one or the other it really <laughs> just varies from song to song truly for example with this kind of word that one actually was melody driven the the motif that you hear playing throughout that came first but it's like it's so inconsistent it really from song to song i think with every song i have i can tell you a different way that it came to be 
Listening to some of the tracks on your 2017 album, which was called Imagineers, there are some very resonant lyrics in the title track about how we've not given up on dreaming just because we're marking time in good careers, banging our head against our corner office wall and wielding power quietly like water carving stone. Tell Mm. us about the title Imagineers and, and the message in that track. Yeah, I love that song and the idea of of those two sides kind of of your brain and of your being kind of coexisting together. Because for so many of us, we have these areas of passion for ourselves, where we are our most creative, where we almost are like our childlike energy is still there, that creativity that makes us so full of wonder as kids. And then many of us are at the same time coexisting as these very, very productive adults. But um, yeah, that idea is that notion of kind of those two things existing side by side. Um, and so the song was kind of about that. It's it, It's actually inspired by two different women who were a couple of generations apart from one another, but who both had really interesting career trajectories and who both needed to figure out how to be both of those things, how to still be really, really good in their careers. They're both incredibly powerful women in their work and in their day-to-day lives, but they also are both just absolute amazingly wonder-filled humans. And so watching them both have this parallel journey at these various stages in their careers uh, really inspired the song. That's one that is a dear, dear song to me. You mentioned earlier how people say, oh, you should be selling Kleenex on the way in because people always cry to Chris Matthews' concert. (laughs) Is there, of the songs that you have written, is there a song that affects you the most profoundly that you well up during your singing of it? Yeah, uh, it took me a very long time after writing my song, How Many More, uh, to be able to even perform that song. And on occasion, even still, I will find myself just having to stop before it's finished because it's such a difficult song to sing. It's a Black Lives Matter song. And I've talked about this many times on on a few different songs of mine, but after 2020, after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and uh, Elijah McClain and so many different people were killed, it felt so urgent to be able to figure out a way to have that conversation in a way that had not yet been had by me with my audiences. I'm very fortunate to have the platform that I have. My audiences are by and large older than me and by and large, very, very white. And so because of that, to be able to have their attention and have conversations like that with with a large group of people at a time is a great, tremendous responsibility and one that I do not take lightly. And so to be able to figure out how can I talk to them about this in a way that will hopefully resonate with them and hopefully inspire empathy with them and hopefully give them a tool of their own to be able to go out and have these conversations themselves in their own communities with their own friends. Because that's kind of where the change happens so often is with the folks who don't look like me, is with them being engaged and figuring out how to do something, do anything, do something. And so, yeah, that song, it is it is a hard one to sing for me, even still, but it is a, an incredibly important song. So I, I do try. You can find out more about Chris and listen to her music on her website at chrismatthews.com. And that's spelled C-R-Y-S Matthews with a double T, chrismatthews.com. Chris, thank you so much for doing the work, for being a perpetual drum major for justice and for making time to chat to me today. Thank you so much for having me, Diana. It was an absolute delight. 
It takes a lot of guts to leave the limelight of your hometown and relocate to a giant city half a country away where nobody knows you. And it takes even more guts and self-awareness to say, you know, I have done my best here and this is no longer healthy for me and make the decision to come home. But for St. Louis musician Paige Alyssa, the move back from Los Angeles to their home city of St. Louis has been the start of a brand new musical creation, Paige Alyssa and the Max. Although only 29, Paige already has multiple albums to their name, including an instrumental seven-track EP that came out last year titled No Worries, which was inspired by Paige's love of 1980s pop and Sonic the Hedgehog. For Paige, music is about spreading joy and inspiring others, and that music is a reflection of growing up, singing gospel, playing drums since they were nine, a degree in jazz vocal performance from Webster University, plus their love of 80s synth-pop video games and new jack swing, where the rhythms of hip-hop street beats fuse with urban R&B. It is this blend of multifarious influences that creates a sound that is uniquely Paige Alyssa. And it has been a busy few weeks for Paige. A couple of weeks ago, the Paige Alyssa Quintet played at Jazz St. Louis. There have been rehearsals for Paige Alyssa and the Max's upcoming live debut at the St. Louis Art Museum on August the 26th. And this week, the group dropped their first single titled Liquor. And this month, Paige Alyssa is also one of the Missouri Arts Council's featured artists. So I am delighted that in between everything else, Paige is here on Speaking of the Arts. Welcome to the show, Paige. Thank you so much, Diana. That was a lovely intro. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to get that recorded and carry it with me everywhere I go. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. I think we have to start with Sonic the Hedgehog, about which I know nothing, but I do <laughs> see from a quick internet scroll that it is considered to have some of the best music in the video gaming world. So maybe it is no surprise that you find musical inspiration there. But what do you love about it? Everything. So like I grew up in church, so I spent a lot of my time listening to gospel music because not only was I in church, my mom is a minister of music. So she was constantly looking for new things to teach. And so we just exclusively I listened to gospel music up until maybe I was like 11 years old. But then the times I wasn't listening to gospel music, I was playing my Sega Genesis. And so <laughs> I was getting all these different sounds from all the video games I was playing. And like, I just loved Sonic so much as a kid. I've been playing that game since before I started school, you know what I mean? So it's colorful and just the music is so good. So I would find myself five, six years old, making up song lyrics, these little melodies that are playing on these levels. And they have stuck with me for like 23 years and counting. And so much of that sound has inspired my own work as a producer. And honestly, a lot of the Sonic soundtrack pulls a lot from synth pop and New Jack Swing. So there's a lot of overlap in the type of styles of music that I enjoy listening to anyway. So it kind of was very serendipitous, you know, but also very much on point for the person that I am. <laughs> <laughs> so your world is now super busy. Concerts, debuts, new singles, and your brand new venture, Paige, Alyssa, and the Max. Tell us about this venture and how and why you all came together. Yeah. So when I got back from LA, I really took some time to just think about why I do what I do. Like, why am I a musician outside of the idea of fame and riches, those type of things? Like, I wanted to connect with my art in a very personal way. And connecting with it 
in ways that I had gone about in the past and equating my success based off of like things that I was getting, it wasn't fulfilling for me and it also wasn't sustainable for me. So when I came back from LA, I was just doing a lot of thinking and like, I missed my music community here so much. Like I missed my siblings that have been playing with me since I graduated from college and took me under their wing. And when I came back, I was like, I want to do something with my friends. Like I had multiple projects on the table that I could do. And I decided on Pageless and the Max, you know, the eight piece band, the most expensive one (laughs) (laughs) that I could come up with. Right. But like, it just, it made my heart smile. And I wanted to get back to that with my art because I used to sing when I was a kid, just because I liked it. And as you get older, you know, you get jaded and life and capitalism and money, all those things start taking a toll on like your decision-making and not saying that those things don't still obviously hold some type of importance to me now, but it just was really important for me to pick out my favorite musicians in St. Louis and the people who really held me down when I got back from L.A., Um, the people who have been inspiring me and telling me to keep going from the beginning. I just wanted to do something with them that they could feel proud of and that I could feel proud of too, because this is my family, you know, and so that's the reason why I really wanted to do it. And I haven't been able to actually create an album with my band before. Most of the stuff I would do, I'd produce it on my own. I'd write everything on my own, but I just wanted to do something different because I am different. I came back from LA a different person and I've just grown a whole lot in these last two years. And I wanted this record to reflect that in all the ways that I've changed. Talk to me a little bit about that, about coming back from LA and how, how that whole experience changed you as an artist. I kind of refer to those moments in my life as like an ego death. And that's basically where you're forced to look yourself like in the eyes and be like, okay, so (laughs) you have a choice to like take these challenges about your character and these things that you're like been struggling with mentally head on, or you can continue on this path and like, you know, know that where you're at right now in your life is not healthy for you and can keep making the same mistakes over and over again until it has an even more detrimental impact. And obviously I chose the former. (laughs) And so, I mean, being out in LA just kind of, it again, puts a lot of things in perspective for me. Like, I remember having a conversation like if I don't get these major milestones that I created for myself, like no one said that I had to go and do all these things as far as like what success looks like being a multi-platinum or, you know, millionaire, all these things that people think of or what we tend to chase when we're in, you know, the field that we're in. And I had to kind of take a step back and be like, I need my music to mean something to me, whether I do those things or not. And I'm always going to continue to reach for the stars, but like I have to be able to be happy with the art that I have in the community that has always been here. Because if none of those things come to fruition, does that mean everything that I've been working for was like null and void? Was it all a lie? And like being out in LA really made me wrestle with that question. And I, I was at this point where going to LA was, was like the ultimate thing that I wanted to do or I thought I wanted to do. And then when I got out there, I was like starting to realize that I'm not happy. My art isn't making me happy. I feel like my music is just becoming a means to an end. And like, I just don't feel like myself anymore. So at what point do I be grown enough to say like, I need to change something or something is needs to happen differently. And that's how I got to that point. And I came home from LA. And then the day I got back in St. Louis was the first COVID case popped up in the United States. (laughs) Right. And so I I decided to stay home. 
it just gave me a chance to come home and heal and like work through some mental health things so I can just be a better person and be a better musician and be a better community member here to my friends and family and my musician friends. So now that you are working collaboratively with the other members of of the band, of the Max, you are blending your influences. So it's not only your voice now. I think you've talked about it, about how you want their influences to also be part of that music. So talk a little bit about how difficult that is, having gone from being a solo artist to now working with a band. The cool thing about it, most of the people who are in the Max have been playing live with me since like 2016. But the process was different. Like I was writing and producing everything in my house and I would give them the music and they would just execute. But this time, you know, like my friend Luke Saylor, who is one of the keyboardists in the band, like he and I got together and workshopped up these two singles and I played them for him and he put his swing on them. When we got in the studio, everyone had the lead sheet with the chord progressions, but I didn't really give anyone a direction on how I wanted it played. (laughs) And the reason why I did that is because I didn't know how else to approach it because I had just worked so siloed and like Mm. anything I ever did was just really coming directly from my mind. And like I, I just was really stubborn about anything that I wanted to do. And I feel like the more I relinquish my artistic power to the people that I trust around me and the people who I adore as musicians, the better this, this music feels. And it's just, is really incredible to be working with like this group of musicians who have seen me grow up as, as a singer and performer and a producer. And I've also have seen them do the same. And so now that we're all in this place, we're able to just kind of throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. And if something doesn't work, then all right, we're going we're gonna to go back and do it again. <laughs> well, let's take a little musical break. I'd love to play a little bit of your brand new single, Liquor, released this week. But tell us a little bit about that track first. Yeah, so I went with Liquor as the main single because I wanted to give my audience a piece of something that's Paige Alyssa, you know, like this is my first studio recording since 2018. So I wanted to give them something that still sounded like me, but is also starting to move away from what people would expect from me. So it's very groovy. I'm singing down on it. So I think my voice sounds fantastic. And like BB and Chrissy sound fantastic, the three of us together. So yeah, I think people can expect to, you know, get their groove on a little bit and enjoy all the beautiful colors that are painted with this tune. Okay, here it is. Liquor by Paige Alyssa and The Max.
grew up in the Baptist church, but you split with the church after the Marriage Equality Act and the hateful rhetoric towards LGBTQ people. Talk to me, though, about the musical positives you take away from that upbringing and also how how breaking with the church really allowed you to center your own identity in your music. Yeah, so everything musically, I feel like I owe to the Baptist church. I owe to my mother, who is still currently a minister of music in the church. Like as far as my sense of rhythm and how I feel and hear music, all of it, I owe all of it to the church. And it was actually really hard for me to to make that transition out from being affiliated with the Baptist church because I had self-identified as queer long before I left, you know, the church. Like I, all through college, I was out and I still was playing at my church, but like I, I wasn't out at church, you know what I mean? And when the, my first EP came out, I didn't really specify about like what gender I was singing about. Like I was using all gender neutral terms, which is something that I do now anyway, just because I know folks who use they, them, I use they, them. So I use it as a level of like inclusivity now. But when I was doing it on my first record, I was afraid if people from my church who adored me and supported me, heard me singing about relationships with other women, it would be an issue. So I kept that all under wraps for like that community for a long time. Um, And when I did decide, finally decide to leave, it just kind of was at a point where I'm like, I feel secure in myself. And I know that I deserve to be in places where I'm safe and where I'm celebrated. And it also still hurt though, because so much of who I am as a musician, you know, is rooted in all those memories and all that training and upbringing. And I honestly still very much miss playing gospel music on a weekly basis, you know? So, but I'm glad that I did it because now I just have this, like, I'm just completely open. I'm not in any space where I have to compromise who I am in order to feel safe or to be, to be seen. And at the end of the day, that's going to be the thing that's most important to me. I'm curious whether now living as an openly queer person, whether you have felt an opening up or an increased inclusiveness within the music industry, like such a male dominated space and whether today Mm -hmm. and moving forward, it feels different than it did five years ago. Is it changing? So it's a tough question, you know, because I feel like as far as the music industry goes, I think that I have been able to navigate the scene in different ways than like my other femme presenting peers go. I consider myself more of like a masculine presenting person, more of a tomboy. And the men in these spaces kind of recognize me as such. And so I get treated like one of the homeboys, you know what I mean? So, and I'm also at the same time, there's this level of me being little sister, you know? So there's just this level of protection that I feel like I'm always, I always have around me. One, because the the people in my life who don't identify as queer, the other musicians that are in my life who don't identify that way are so supportive of me. And like, they are always, always, always have been respectful and have protected me and like been respectful of my community and supported that. But I know that there are definitely some instances where like my musician friends that may be more femme presenting, they sometimes don't have that same access that I have. Like there will be people who will be disrespectful to them. And so like, I know that a lot of my women friends are navigating that level of it. And that's not to say that I don't get some level of that either. Right. 
But at the same time, though, I think I've been able to navigate those spaces in a way that my other peers may not be able to because of, you know, I have a degree from Webster and I also have this background in nonprofit. And then I also have these different levels that kind of overlap that I don't catch heat quite the same way as other people. And there is always going to be huge, huge room for improvement, especially in the way that we highlight our trans musicians and our non-binary, other non-binary musicians like it just can't be room for me at the table, you know, as like a genderqueer person. Like I want more people who look like me to be able to come into these spaces and feel safe too. I really hope that one day there is no more room for improvement because it is fully improved. We can Ugh, hope right, for that, I, right? Fingers crossed. Seriously, I reach for that every day. So you are involved with all stages of your musical creations. You are a songwriter, a multi-instrumentalist, a vocalist of multiple genres, a ranger, producer. And you said in an interview a few years ago that if you were not able to bring folks joy or inspire dreamers or put good things back into the atmosphere with your art, then all of those tools, all of those abilities that you have would be for nothing because it is about joy. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that moment when you look out into a crowd and you're standing there on stage and you just see and you feel that connection between the audience and your music. How does that feel? It feels incredible, you know, and I'm, I'm really glad that we're actually this, we're having this interview today because I just have been thinking about that a lot. Again, going back to why I do what I do and like that really is what it's for is to inspire people and to bring joy. Like a lot of my music is about love, you know, and like physical intimacy. Right. But I think the reason why I write those ways is because people who look like me, it's already been decided by certain parts of our society that we don't deserve love. We don't deserve to experience joy fully. We don't deserve to experience all these different things. And we have to constantly remind folks that we actually do deserve love and we do deserve to experience joy. And so my outlook is always that like, I am writing these songs from that place that like, I don't have to explain anything. It's already should be understood that, I'm having fun and living my life. And if I can do it, then you can do it too. So that's always one piece of it because regardless of whether I'm singing to another girl or not, like my fan base is made up of all types of people with different identities. And like, they all just love the music and they love the joy that they feel when they hear me perform or hear my music. And that's really what it's all about. And like, on a professional standpoint, if I can inspire other queer people to do this as authentically as possible and to be musicians and to be confident to hit that stage, then like, that's the reason why I do it. And those are the things that make me happy when like young trans folks come up to me and say like, yo, hearing your song made me feel that I can do X, Y, and Z. And that's ultimately what it comes down to is just letting people know that you can have joy despite what the world is showing us and telling us now. And that like joy is just as radical mm. um, as a means to, to be living. That's beautiful. Well, tomorrow night, Paige Alyssa and the Max will play their first live concert at the St. Louis Art Museum as part of its Slam Underground series. Your new single came out this week. What do the next few months look like for you? It's all happening. Oh, God, everything is happening so fast. (laughs) It's crazy because I wrote these songs like two years ago and I finally workshopped them in March and now it's August. I'm like, oh, my God. Um, I'm hoping to shoot a video for a particular girl in the next month or so. So that's coming up. Um, I want to drop two more singles within the next six months. Again, I'm being really ambitious. And the goal is to have like a nine track 
album with Page Listen to Max next spring. So everybody just keep us in your positive thoughts because we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's go out with a clip from the other track on your single. This one is Particular Girl. Any notes you would like to impart on this one, Paige? Yeah, so this one is actually for for my girlfriend. Um, She's a Virgo, you know, and she's very particular. And like, I actually wrote this before she and I even got together. Like we were just friends and I just, I was picking up some of the, her habits and some of her ways. And I was like, wow, she's really particular. And today is the first day of Virgo season. So, you know, it's just very, very much on point. (laughs) Perfect. Well, here it is. Just a short clip of Particular Girl by my guest, Paige Alyssa of Paige Alyssa and the Max. exciting times page i am so excited for you and i hope that maybe you make it to columbia before too long or somewhere in mid-missouri yeah i would actually love that a lot like i the next thing on my list that i really want to check off is like i want a tour like i want to go on tour you know and so i'm hoping that i can make it up into columbia and do do a gig or two with the max and yeah we'll put that in the atmosphere that i can come up and see you diana we <laughs> would love to see you then i can have you back on the show we could do some more chatting yeah <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> to find out more about Paige Alyssa and their music, visit pageallyssamusic.com. And that's P-A-I-G-E-A-L-Y-S-S-A music, pageallyssamusic.com. And Paige, thank you so much for sharing a little bit with us about your musical journey and for making time to chat this evening. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Back in the 1970s, when I was first watching a TV music show in England called Top of the Pops, there was an American female rock guitarist called Susie Quattro. She was never really a big deal here in her home country, but she was massive in England, Europe and Australia and was the coolest woman I had ever seen. Dressed in black leather, rocking out with her guitar, her gravelly voice belting out glam rock songs. She was really the first of her kind, the first woman who, as she said, played the ball at their own game. She was a major influence for Joan Jett, Chrissy Hine, The Runaways and lots of female rockers who came after. And whenever I see a female guitarist today, I still think of Susie. 
And although my next guest is definitely not playing glam rock, there is something about the way Miss Molly Sims rocks the guitar and seeks to be unapologetically herself, writing raw, honest, soulful music that she hopes we can feel all the way down to our bones that reminds me of Susie Q. Miss Molly Sims describes herself as not your typical singer-songwriter. She has released four solo albums, the latest in 2020, titled Reckless, and back in the 20-teens, she also toured across the country with a rockabilly band called the Bible Belt Sinners. Great name. Who shared the stage with legends such as Chuck Berry and the Queen of Rockabilly, Wanda Jackson. Molly has been described as having the righteous vigour of Lucinda Williams and as being known for her roughneck operatic voice which packs a lungful of dusty soul and straight shooting lyrics. By day, she works for the School of Rock, both in the United States and internationally, managing their operational standards and compliance, and apparently made her debut singing on an airplane at the age of six. We have a lot to cover. Welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Miss Molly Sims. Thank you. What a wonderful introduction. I have to say, I love Susie Quattro. That self-titled album with the song Can the Can yeah. is a big influence. That is so exciting to hear because I did look on the School of Rock website and there's a little there's a little section that says female guitarists you should know and Susie Quattro is not on that list. Ooh, we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, she was bass, right? So I mean that's what I think of. She's bass guitar, so maybe yeah. that list was focusing on electric guitar, six string. Maybe. She's still out there rocking it at seventy one. She's awesome. Incredible. Yeah. So the Miss Molly Sims story starts on a dead end circle driving, close minded small town in Illinois. There's a moment of airborne precociousness, <laughs> and before you know it, you're sharing a stage with musical legends. What is your secret, Molly? Hmm. I think when you are one of those people who is singing from a very young age and and has that strong desire to want to do something. It's a huge part of your life. It drives the decisions that you make as you, as you grow up. And I mean, a lot of writing, sitting in class and using notebooks to write, not schoolwork, but songs that I was working on. And then I graduated high school early and I went to Houston. I had a family member there I stayed with and I started playing blues jam. So that was really my first experience to, be able to actually get on stage and put some of that into practice and say, okay, what is it like to be a Susie Quattro? How do you actually lead a band? Um, you tell them the key, the feel, all those sort of things. So it was, it was a big learning experience. But coming out of that, it's all about the networking and getting out there. And it's truly a, again, it's a calling. It's like you have to do it. And then sometimes you don't even necessarily want to do it. It's just it is. It's a big part of you. So what was your musical world like growing up? Did you come from a musical family? What were you surrounded by? So it definitely was important in my family to learn some sort of an instrument. So I think, you know, in the old school mentality was everyone should learn piano. <laughs> um, so that was something that, you know, my mom knew how to play piano. Grandma knew how to play piano. So my sister and I took a good five years of piano lessons and it wasn't until later that, you know, I had told my mom my whole life, oh, I want to be a singer. She said, well, you've got to learn an instrument that you play along with that. So what do you want to do? I picked guitar. And so around 14, I started playing guitar. It was to impress a boy that I liked. But, <laughs> but I stuck with that. And obviously, he's not around anymore. So yeah, that was that was really how I got into actually playing guitar. But singing was, I mean, there was definitely a love of the arts in the house. And my mom loved to sing. 
I have like cassette tapes of her doing Janis Joplin. And that was always a big part of the household for sure. So having found your way to guitar, how did you find your way to songwriting? Well, growing up, my mom read to me a lot. And I think it's super important if you have kids that you're exposing them to literature and to poetry and, you know, the way young kids brain works when you're reading that poetry, like it just helping them figure out how to create rhyme and what rhyme is. And she played a lot of simplistic music for me, like country music to learn the rhyme schemes and, and be able to anticipate what words coming next and things like that. So we read a lot of A.A. A. Milne growing up and all the classic children's, you know, Mother Goose and all the verses and stuff. And I think that truly helped build the foundation of loving words and wanting to be a wordsmith. So I, I can't move on without just asking you quickly about the airplane story. Like how <laughs> did you make your debut on an airplane? I was sitting here going, how does she know all this about me? There must be a lot of interesting things out in the in the web universe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I dig deep and I found one little clip. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. When I was six, I went on my first airplane and there was some sort of a, a malfunction that they had a maintenance issue. And instead of deboarding us and getting on another plane, they actually had us waiting there. It was probably a couple hour wait. And in the meantime, as a little six-year-old kid, I'm like, I want a soda pop. And my dad's like, well, if, you know, go up there and tell the lady. They were, they had a guy singing over the – and it's so weird. It sticks in my head. He was singing the Barney song, like, I love you. you. And for a, a grown man, yeah, it was very bizarre, like, memory. But I went up and said, can I sing a song? And they said, okay. And so I sang, uh, isn't it ironic, Alanis Morissette. And that was <laughs> – and when I got done, I said – and I don't know if the lady even knew I wanted a soda. I said, can I have a soda now? And she said – Oh, well, sing us one more. And so that's the only song I really knew. So I sang that again, and everyone clapped. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't think you said it. I think someone said it about you, but about you not being a typical singer-songwriter. But I'm wondering in what way you feel like you are not a typical singer-songwriter. I feel like there's a tendency to, when you hear that word or that, you know, you hear singer-songwriter, you think of, especially for, for women, you think of a very soft voice, you know, singing kind of folksy songs like a Joan Baez or something, the modern Joan Baez, but that's definitely not it. It's it's basically, in my opinion, I'm, I'm going for like a power pop, you know, Nick Lowe, Elvis Costello, like a little more of a driving voice that you don't necessarily always hear. And so that's that's the kind of side I'm trying to show. Did you train your voice to be a driving voice or was it just something that you were born with? You know, I guess it's a bit of both, right? Like you have to find your voice. You learn how to sing and then you have to figure out who you are, right? So it's a little mix of both. But I I definitely, even in the early days of of singing, and there's a little video from 2008, and I definitely never had the sweet, soft singer-songwriter voice. So So you brought out your first solo album in 2013 called Revenants, and that really seemed to get you a lot of attention and kudos, kind of reading various reviews about it. That was really where you kind of made your mark as a solo artist. How did that first album change how you saw yourself? Well, at that time when I put that record out, I was about 21 or so, maybe a little bit older than that, 23 And I really wanted to be coming out of high school. I really wanted to be a blues woman. That was my, oh my gosh, I was so into, you know, Mississippi John Hurt and Colin Wolf and just all the heavy hitters and Big Maybell. 
so that was what I was going for with that record. And as far as what I learned, I mean, oh my gosh, so much, right? Like we, we not only learn from the stage, but we learn from the studio. So it was my first time really being in a variety of different studios and cutting to tape and um, working with different musicians. And in some cases, and in most cases, musicians I had never met before. So for that album, I actually was traveling to Nashville, Tennessee. So that's, that's where I learned a lot was, you know, again, working with people you've in some cases never met before and, and getting the experience in the studio of you better be ready and you better come prepared and know your stuff. And were you prepared and knew your stuff? For the most part. I mean, I, I definitely think that I can remember some painful sessions of, of trying to cut solos and just, you know, maybe you lay it down like 10, 15 times and you're like, all right, I guess we got what we need. We'll make some edits there. <laughs> <laughs> And so that first solo album, was that right after or at the same time as you were part of the rockabilly band, the Bible Belt Sinners? It was before that because actually the drummer from that band, Bible Belt Sinners, played with me at the release of Revenants. So Revenants probably took me several years to actually record. And by the time it was released, I had been in the Bible Belt Sinners for at least a year or two. It's such a great name. Oh, thank you. <laughs> did, did it cause any uh, consternation anywhere that you went? I have a couple interesting stories about it. It sometimes worked in our favor on accident. So there was a time where we were on tour in the South and we had gotten pulled over. I can't remember why or if we just had... Maybe we had stopped and had, you know, anytime you have a bunch of gear in the back of your van, you're liable to catch some flack for it by the police at some point. <laughs> but the police had, were talking to us, you know, where are you going? Where have you been? All that sort of stuff. And, oh, we're the Bible Belt Sinners. And I think on the back of our van, there maybe was a sticker or something. And I think that we got, in that case, the tip of the hat. Like, oh, you're the Bible Belt Sinners. Oh, that's a great name, you know. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if it was him who asked me this or the nun on the plane, but at some point, one of somebody asked me, "Are you guys a, a gospel group?" And we always said yes to that question. <laughs> In the South, yes, of course. <laughs> it was a nun on a plane. I had, well, I did. I sat next to a nun on a plane. I think she asked me the same question. You're in a oh, you're in a band, Bible Belt Sinners. Is that a gospel group? Of course it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't ask you about the sinning part. Yeah. <laughs> People don't seem to catch that. I don't know when you get asked in those situations. It's befuddling but well i would love to take a listen to a track from your 2020 album titled reckless so tell us about a song that you'd like us to play and, and tell us a little bit about it sure i think we should listen to red brick town which i believe is the first track on the record when i think about that song and i was listening to it a little bit today to kind of prepare for our conversation and just honestly refresh myself because i wrote this song i, I want to say around 2014 I initially wrote it for a project that was called STL Here and Now Project. There was a friend of mine, he's in a band called Old Souls Revival. His name's Neil C. Luke, and he did a project that he was essentially trying to gather a group of eclectic STL musicians and have them write a song either that they could never finish that was in progress or a completely new song and then use other musicians from the city to complete it and actually produce a record out of this. But I recorded that album a separate time before Reckless uh, came out, and it was for this project. And it's a little bit different, but it kind of ties to the theme of this album, Reckless, which is I had a bunch of songs that I would have called throwaway songs. So songs that you, oh, I, you know, I'm never going to finish that, or it's not good enough, or you know, what have you. And uh, that's what I really tried to do here was to take all of those pieces and all those partial songs and make a complete album. And I think it worked rather well. 
Okay, here it is, Red Brick Town by Miss Molly Sims. Town by Miss Molly Sims. You can hear Molly's music on all streaming platforms and you can also find out more about Molly and her music on her website, MissMollySims.com. Molly, thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your music and history and for making time to chat this evening. Thank you so much, Diana. This was great. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear on Spotify. Just search for Speaking of the Arts. And of course, you can always connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests this evening, three fabulous singer-songwriters, Chris Matthews, Paige Alyssa and Miss Molly Sims. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams, whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can hear more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Speaking of the Arts and my name is Diana Moxon. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Missouri! Missouri!